Now, it's typical for us to work through the books of the Bible, but uh, as we approach Christmas, the time of the year where we remember and celebrate the wonderful news that Jesus came into the world, as we approach Christmas this year, we're going to look at how God speaks to us, how God has a redemptive plan throughout history, that Jesus isn't just some nice story made up by his disciples looking for something greater to believe in, but that Jesus coming to earth as a human was part of the plan all along, since the beginning. Today, we're going to see how God speaks to the problem of evil. The problem of evil. I'll explain what I mean by that, but before we begin, let us pray and ask for God's help this morning. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we we come to hear you speak, Lord. Not audible words, Lord, but uh, words from your Bible, your word. Lord, um, help us to hear from you, to hear that you have been speaking throughout time. Lord, I pray, Lord, that uh, you'll be uh, with my words, Lord, that you'll help me to speak clearly that I'll be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Uh, amen. The problem of evil. Now, some of you might be wondering what I'm talking about, but the problem of evil is a common philosophical objection that atheists have against Christianity. The argument is this, that because of the evil that we see in the world, either God is not powerful or not good. Their argument is that because we see evil all around us, that the God of the Bible cannot be true and their claim does not exist at all. If the God of the Bible claims to be loving and righteous, yet we see a world full of evil, how can this be? To them, this is an obvious contradiction that in their mind proves that the God of the Bible does not exist. But let us take a closer look at the assertion. The problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then how can evil exist? David Hume, in his 1779 book, Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, says this to sum up his argument. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both willing and able? Whence then is evil? There appears to be a contradiction. God's power, God's goodness, and the presence of evil can't all be true at the same time, can it? My aim this morning is to, to not only show you that the presence of evil is, is not a problem for us and, and actually causes more problems for atheists, but primarily that God speaks to the problem and provides a solution. So let's start with this. Evil needs good. Evil and good are opposites. You can't have good without evil. You can't have evil without good. And so evil's existence points to the existence of morality, defining what is good and what is bad. This definition of good and bad is a moral law. And to have a moral law, you need a moral lawgiver. This lawgiver must exist outside of time and space. 
It must be wise enough to define what is good and what is evil, but also must be powerful enough to enforce those laws. This sounds a lot like God. If there is then, though, this external reference, this external grounding for morality, then it is absolute and it is unavoidable. The problem is, though, is that the world doesn't want to acknowledge God. Everyone wants to live as their own king, to be autonomous, literally self-law, autonomous, a law unto themselves, to rule their own life without being under the lordship of another. Now, the world tries to make sense of our obvious morality without having to acknowledge God in a variety of ways. Evolution says that morality is an illusion. Morality is something that we have made up in our minds, and it is that way because it has led to the survival of the species. We are the way we are because of the evolutionary advantage that a sense of morality gives us, even if it isn't real. There are advantages to us as a species if we don't kill each other and if we work together. And so we should act morally insofar as it provides an advantage for us. Evolution supposes that this imaginary morality contributes to our human, human flourishing, which is good, and we should strive for it. Yet, without an external source, it can't really define or settle on what human flourishing actually looks like. Postmodern philosophy says that there is no truth, that everything is relative. What is true in your own eyes is true. This is eerily similar to the final verse in the book of Judges, 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Christian apologist Greg Kokel frequently talks about relativism, and he describes the ridiculousness of this position as having your feet planted firmly in mid-air. Postmodern relativism provides no rhyme or reason for evil. There is no truth, only power. Others use social contract as a way to explain morality, that we all have this entered into this unspoken contract with society to define and enforce morality. And so morality is not what is legislated by government, but what is socially and culturally acceptable. The problem with social contract is that this morality is not grounded in anything but simply popular opinion and subject to change. Proponents say that the society is getting better and closer to, to, closer to true morality, but it is unable to define what true morality is. Under social contract, if you speak up against the culture of the day, like William Wilberforce in his fight against slavery, or Martin Luther King in fighting for civil rights, or many, many, many others, then you could either be seen as a villain or as a hero, simply depending on what society as a whole thinks at the time. And this is subject to change. It's not about merit or truth to an idea, but simply, is the idea popular? Social contract says morality is subject to the whims of popular opinion. All of these, and there are many, many more opinions on this topic, but none can define nor explain why we see evil in the world. 
Romans chapters 1 and 2 talk about how the reality of God as a creator is unavoidable. That God is clearly evident in his creation. No one is without excuse. That each of us have the requirements of the law written on our hearts, imprinted on us. Our conscience bears witness to it. We all know that murder is wrong. We see injustice and cry against it. Whether you are a Christian or not, we all know deep down as we look at the evil in the world that this is not normal. This is not the way it is supposed to be. Deep down we all cry out for justice, longing for everything to be made right. And more than that, the evil is not just out there in the world. The author of Romans goes to point out that we are all under sin. And no one can stand up to the perfect requirements of God's law. Because we know that there is a true morality and that morality comes from God, his law is absolute and unavoidable. We need our, we ourselves need to measure up, not to our own standards that we make for ourselves. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person. Well, at least I'm better than that person over there. Or I'm no Hitler. Yeah, but you're no Jesus either. We need to measure ourselves off the true and perfect nature of God. And it's clear how we stack up. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 When we break the law, we rightfully deserve punishment. We'll come back to this more later on. But where does evil come from? Did God make it? No, God is good and cannot make or cause evil. There is a, a dialogue recorded between Socrates and Euthyphro that tried unsuccessfully to answer what is good. I'm not going to get into it now, but if you're interested, uh, send me a message after the service and ask me, what is the solution to Euthyphro's dilemma? I'd love to talk to you with about it. Genesis 1.1 says that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of day six, in verse 31, God saw all that had been made, and it was very good indeed. God made everything, and it was perfect. It was just as it was supposed to be. No pain, no hardships, just a very good world for God's creation to enjoy. So where did it come from? Why do we see evil all around us? If God is good, where did it come from? Today's passage gives us the answer. Open your Bibles to Genesis 3. Here we read is Adam and Eve living in the very good garden that God had made for them. They had all that they needed. They lacked no good thing. Yet Satan came into the world, into the garden, and deceived them. Opposing God's word, Satan planted seeds of doubt. Maybe God doesn't, maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. Maybe God doesn't love you. Maybe God doesn't want you to be happy. Have you heard those lies for yourself? Those lies penetrated the heart of Eve and she was deceived and she ate. Rejecting the good rule of God, unfaithful to the word of God, Eve usurped the throne 
and intending to become Lord of her own life, she followed the words of Satan and subjected herself to his evil rule. Adam did the same. Adam, who was meant to guard and protect Eve, failed to do so, and thus evil and sin and shame and death enters into the world. Because of their action, the world is cursed. God didn't make evil, but because of the actions of Adam, the world now knows sin. Imagine for a moment that you've made a delicious meal. I want to ask you what your favourite meal is, but it's a little bit difficult this morning. Um, the one that comes to mind for me and our family is, is roast lamb. Uh, so imagine though, whatever it is for you, but for me, uh, imagine that you've made some roast lamb and it's the best roast lamb that you've ever created, but there is way too much of it. You couldn't eat all of it. You didn't protect it or guard it, so you left it out on the bench for a week and now it's full of maggots. Now, roast, roast lamb doesn't usually contain maggots, but, uh, but flies have come and laid eggs in it and infested it. It has been corrupted. The very good creation that God made is now corrupted, infested, bent, distorted, cursed because of the sin of Adam. We experience hardship and evil and pain and suffering because of the curse of sin. Now, sin and evil is not just out there doing things to us, but it is also in here too. That corruption, that tendency towards evil is now in all of us. As Genesis 1 says, humanity was made in the image of God. But now we also have inherited the sinful, evil image of Adam. We are born with it. You might have heard it said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I say that that's wrong. It's not that the power is the thing that does the corruption. We are all corrupt. Power simply gives opportunity for that corruption to play out. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? God did not create anything that wasn't good. God does not create evil. Corruption entered the world by the free will of Adam a creature, humanity joining in Satan's corruption. Satan cannot create anything. He is not God. All he can do is corrupt and accuse. Michael Horton describes it this way. Satan is running around the Louvre, spray painting over the Mona Lisa, destroying and corrupting all that he can. And, and so we come to the question, why? Why did God create a world that allows evil? The full answer to why requires more time than we have this morning, but I do have a question for you to help you think through it. What is the meaning of life? What is, what is our purpose in life? What is the goal? Are we here for our own happiness? Were we created so that we can have what we want and have a good time? What, what does that even look like? What would a world look like where everyone received whatever they wanted? There is a scene in the movie, Bruce Almighty, who's, who's seen the movie? Well, anyway, there's a scene in the movie where Bruce 
who is acting as God for a time, he gets sick of all the requests made to him, and so he says yes to every prayer. He has his prayers configured as email, he selects reply all and types yes, and hits send. What happens? The world descended into chaos. Everything doing what everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. It's judges all over again, or Lord of the Flies, if you're familiar with that one. The first question of the Westminster Catechism gives us an alternative to living for ourselves. Question one, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. We are here for God's glory, not, not for our happiness. The highest good of mankind is not self-pleasure and indulgence, but to glorify God. Putting this into perspective helps us to understand a little of why and corrects our misunderstanding. American philosopher Alvin Plantinga, and I probably butchered that, says this, God creates a world that now contains evil and has a good reason for doing so. This is a very quick answer to a complicated question. So if you have more why questions, then please come and talk to me afterwards. And so here we are in a world full of sin and evil. What are we to do? How do other religions deal with evil? Now I'm going to be painting these with a broad brush, so keep that in mind as we move quickly through these. Materialism and naturalism. This isn't about shopping and nature experiences, but an atheistic view that says that only the physical world exists. When faced with evil, they actually have nothing to complain about. Under their worldview, there is no evil, no right, no wrong. Only the physical things exist. Everything that happens, war, abuse, murder, it is all simply the survival of the fittest. And so, if your child dies because of cancer or was murdered, they deserved to die because they weren't fit enough to survive. What, what a horror of an existence. Evolutionist Richard Dawkins says this, There is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but pitiless indifference. Polytheism pantheism, ancestor worship, pagan spirituality, they all say that everything is the working of the gods or the spirits or the forces. These gods are neither all good or all powerful, but selfish beings that do as they please. The gods don't care about you, everything is just cruel. You can try and appease them and coerce them through worship or even sacrifices. You can try and bend them to your will, but at the end of the day, they do what they want and you can't do anything about it. Buddhism denies the existence of reality, everything, all of it. The good, the bad, everything is an illusion. You need to break your mind free from this reality and become enlightened. You experience evil when you have unmet desires. The solution for the Buddhist is to not desire. Don't care. Don't love, because if you do, you will be disappointed. Beat evil by disassociating yourself from the world. Just don't care. The Buddhist has no answer except denial. Hinduism, 
within the system of karma is this thing called dharma. Dharma says that if tragedy befalls someone, or if they are born into poverty, then it is because they deserve it. Maybe because of a past wrongdoing, maybe even punishment from a previous life. And it is wrong to oppose dharma. Helping someone up, giving food to the needy, is going against the rules of the universe. If you see someone in hard times suffering under abuse, you must not help them because they deserve it. And if it is you that is suffering, then there is no hope for you. Other theistic religions, Islam, Judaism, Mormons, Catholics, Scientologists, JWs, they all have their spin, but they say the same thing. It's up to you. You have to be good. There is evil in the world. It's everywhere, but you must overcome it on your own. Here are the rules. Here are the procedures to follow. And then if you're good enough, if you've prayed enough, confessed enough, given enough money, gained enough faith, done enough good, then you'll be blessed. Where is the hope in this? And it's sad to say that even some Christian churches get this wrong too. And it's not just the prosperity gospel preachers, but many other churches, like the church in Galatians, they fall into the trap of adding to the gospel, saying that you need to do something extra to earn salvation. If earning salvation is up to you, then what hope do you have? None of these are satisfying answers. In them, there is no hope in the face of evil. Now, now the problem of evil isn't your regular dinner table conversation, but it is something that many people think about. Questions about evil may not be framed as a direct philosophical or theological question, but if you do have someone asking, you maybe ask, why do you want to know? Because more often than not, there is something going on in their heart that is bothering them. It is not necessarily an intellectual question, but a pastoral one. People are hurting and looking for answers. Maybe war has just broken out and they can't understand why people are dying needlessly. Maybe an earthquake or a volcano or a tsunami has just removed an entire village from the map. Maybe they have a parent who is suffering with terminal illness. Maybe they are struggling to put food on the table, yet they see corporations and billionaires post record profits. Maybe they're recently married and their new husband isn't as kind behind closed doors as they were led to believe. Maybe they have a father who is supposed to protect them and care for them, but does the exact opposite. Maybe they had a friend turn on them, who betrayed their confidence and the trust that they had in them. Maybe a failure of the courts has left them crying out for justice. Maybe there are a couple who've been trying for children for years and years and they finally have a child, but they've just received news that their little baby has some rare condition and they won't see their first birthday. Maybe as they approach Christmas, they mourn an empty chair that was once filled. You know that I could just go on and on with examples. People in this world are suffering and many are looking for answers. Do we have a God who is distant and unsympathetic to our, to our suffering? No, God doesn't ignore the evil and the suffering in the world. 
he did something about it. He spoke to the problem of evil. God acted. He entered the world. How do we know that? Where do we find the answers? The Bible, of course. So what does God's word say about the suffering that we see and that we experience? As we saw earlier, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 how sin and evil came into the world. Now let us look at what happens next. Turn to Genesis 3 verse 8 and following. The first thing we see is that God is the initiator. He is the one seeking out Adam and Eve. They were hiding from God. They were unable to come to him, but God sought them out. The second thing we see is that God calls out their sin. He doesn't minimalize it. He doesn't say, oh, well, that's okay. I expected you to do it. It's only human. Just try better next time. No, there are consequences to sin. And as such, God declares to them the curses that will come to them and all creation. More than that, God exiles them out of the good garden that he made for them. Life will be tough. And they will be suffering because of their sin. And eventually, it will lead to death for them and their children down the generations. And now to top it off, they can no longer be in the presence of their maker, God. But here, in the midst of the curses and the judgment, God speaks hope. God promises that it won't always be this way. Verse 15, a child who will crush the head of the snake, who will destroy the source of evil in the world. Not only does God speak a promise of hope, God displays his grace and mercy. He doesn't just give them words, he covers their shame. See in verse 21, through the shedding of innocent blood, they were covered. The question now on everyone's lip is, Lips are. Who is the promised child? Is it Abel? No. Is it Noah, through whom there was a new start? No. Is it the faithful Abraham? No. What about Joseph, or Moses, or one of the judges, or Samuel the great priest, or the conquering King David, or the wise King Solomon, or Elijah the great prophet? No, none of these were able to rescue humanity and answer the problem of evil. Each one falls short, but reveals a small part of what the promised one would be like. Through each story, the promise grows and becomes clearer, until finally God again initiates. He sends his own son, Jesus. He is God's answer to evil. It was God's plan from the beginning. God spoke and promised that he would deal with it. Jesus is the solution. He is the promised one from Genesis 3, the one who will rescue the world. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, humbled himself and took on the form of a baby to live as and with his people. Although he was perfect, we see that like us, Jesus was impacted by sin. In John 11, Jesus came and was grieved by the death of his friend. Lazarus died and Jesus wept. Jesus saw the pain and the suffering in the world and grieved. 
Luke 19 tells us of when Jesus came and grieved over Jerusalem because of the judgment that would come to them because of their sin. But Jesus' experience of the effects of evil and sin were not just limited to his observations. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reasons for God, describes Jesus' experience of the sinful world like this. Jesus was the most morally upright person who ever lived, yet had a life filled with the experience of poverty, rejection, injustice, and even torture. And it goes beyond this. Corinthians 2, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, "For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And 1 Peter 2.24, He, Jesus, bore our sin in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In the cross we have hope in an evil world, but our hope is not in someone who died. We have hope because of the resurrection. Jesus rising from the grave proves that he has conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 and 45 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Tolkien, in his metaphoric masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, in the last book, Return of the King, when Sam finds that Gandalf is alive, says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? To which Gandalf replies, A great shadow has departed. Through the cross and resurrection, everything sad will come untrue. The shadow of sin has been lifted. The curse broken. And in an echo from Genesis 3, Through the shedding of blood of Jesus, our sins will be covered. Through the cross, Jesus has dealt a mortal blow to sin and death. It is defeated. As we conclude this morning, maybe the philosophy isn't convincing to you, or you don't usually think in those terms, but you don't have to agree with the philosophy. We can look at history, the person and work of Jesus. He is the solution and he is our hope in an evil world. The Bible has the answers to the problem of evil. Throughout the Bible, we read the unfolding story of the devastation that sin causes and God's answer to it. As we'll see in the coming weeks leading up to Christmas, God doesn't stop speaking. In fact, the whole Bible is a true story of the disappointment and suffering in the world but also the hope and promise. It doesn't take long for death to enter the world and for the effect of sin to be felt upon everyone. But through it all, God is there, speaking hope, showing grace, drawing his people to himself, working out his master plan of salvation that was designed before the creation of the world. Now this is the real good news. Jesus has defeated sin and death. Your suffering is real and it is bad, but Jesus has won. 
He is in control of all things, and we know that he will work even this evil thing happening now for our ultimate and eternal good. We live in a fallen world, but do not lose hope, because Christ has overcome the world. This is not the way it is supposed to be. We know too well of the brokenness out there, but we know it also in our hearts too. We all have broken God's law. We have all been unfaithful to his word. We all know that we deserve the punishment for our sin. And that punishment is eternal damnation. But Jesus has dealt with that too. On the cross, he took our sin. The wrath of God that was due to us, Jesus has paid the price for our sin. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of it is under the rule and power of Jesus. Jesus has authority because of the cross. He has taken the penalty of sin upon himself to rescue his people. The resurrection of Jesus is proof that his work is completed. This is the good news, the fantastic news, the best news. All of the sin and evil and suffering in this world is under his good command. He rules over all things. So as we live in this life, we will have persecution and trial and struggles. The effects of a sinful world will be upon us. But have hope. When you see evil, look to Jesus. When you experience evil upon you, look to Jesus. When you see those around you suffering, point them to Jesus. And when you see yourself and how sin has affected every part of your life and your actions, turn to Jesus. Turn to the cross. Realise what he has already done to rescue you. Jesus has died and rose again to deal with the evil in the world. Just as God spoke in the garden, promising to deal with evil, Jesus spoke on the cross. John 19 verse 30. It is finished. Let us pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have dealt with evil. We thank you that you have given us hope in the midst of our sufferings. We thank you that this hope is secure in Jesus, that we can rejoice in what he has done for us. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. It was poured out to us upon the cross. Help us to remember what you have done and to proclaim the gospel to all. Amen.